This is UU Utah Phillips, the golden voice of the great Southwest. And once again, you are listening to Loafer's Glory, the hobo jungle of the mind. Banquets, parties, and balls, boys. Banquets, parties, and balls. Eleanor Roosevelt told us before, that is the reason we're fighting this war for more banquets, parties, and balls, boys. Banquets, parties, and balls. Boys, banquets, and parties, and parties, and banquets, and balls, balls, balls. Well, hello again. This is me, UU Toy Phillips, the engineer Steve Baker here in the studios, the Borsdorf playing that theme music you just heard. Not the explosions, however. That little jingle you were hearing over the top of those explosions was a jingle we used to sing during the Second World War on our way to school. We had all these little jingles that our folks taught us. Most of our parents were progressive parents. And, of course, the teachers would yell at us and say, you can't sing those things. Well, now's the time. That's what I've got on my mind, though. I didn't see Saving Private Ryan. I understand it was a very good movie and very well made, but I know those things exist. I know they still exist in the world, all the horror, all the devastation of war. Some of it's existed in my own life at one time or the other. Now, we're real short of money around my house, and I'll be damned if I'm going to spend any of that money to go to a movie theater and watch people being paid to act out war. Uh, the world's already bad enough. I, I don't need to see anybody play-acting at it. Now, I may be wrong, but I sure am clear about it, huh? But since it was on my mind, I thought that I would put together a show of boyhood recollections of the Second World War growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, and in Dayton, Ohio. Old recollections from about 1942 to 1950. There's a song that you used to hear a lot, but it disappeared from my mind, and I don't know anybody who sings it. Uh, but my old friend Mark Ross in Butte, Montana, does. So I called him up and said, Mark, do you still know that song? And he said, yeah. He went out and borrowed a little Kmart tape recorder, a uh, crummy machine, and sat in his uh, apartment there in Butte, Montana, and, and recorded it and sent it down here. It sounds like it's in the bottom of a rain barrel. Um, sort of song that would have been sung in a bunker, though, in Italy, and that's a fairly apt description of Mark Ross's apartment. Right off, let's listen to General Eisenhower announcing the D-Day invasion. Of course, when they went ashore on D-Day, Lady Astor in Britain sharply criticized the British and American troops in Italy who'd fought all the way up from North Africa for being D-Day Dodgers, and they took that wrong. It was Hamish Henderson, one of the British soldiers in Italy, that wrote the satirical song, The D-Day Dodgers. Let's listen to Eisenhower get the troops ashore, then a live live broadcast from the beaches of Normandy, and then Mark Ross in Butte, Montana, singing D-Day Dodgers. ...of Western Europe. A landing was made this morning on the coast of France by troops of the Allied Expeditionary Force. This landing is part of the concerted United Nations plan for the liberation of Europe, made in conjunction with our great Russian allies. Our own ship has just gave its warning whistles, and now the flak is coming up in the sky. 
like we're going to have a night tonight. glad that there are still people around who know those songs. And I, there are people that I can go to uh, since I'm doing this that, I, that 
have all kinds of things in their heads or in their cellars or on their shelves that, that I can use that I can put back to work again. Uh, you know, the progressive movement was growing very powerful before the Second World War. The CIO, Congress of Industrial Organizations, building industrial unionism uh, in the steel mills after 1940 in, uh, in the United Auto Workers, the great progressive, the great movement of the left f to help labor to get back the wealth that it created on the assumption that, that labor creates all wealth, so all wealth belongs to labor. That should be pretty easy to understand. Along came the Second World War then, and it was a common enemy. Of course, the CIO, like the IWW before, it had been badly red-baited, badly red-baited. Tools of the Soviet Union, everything paid for by the ubiquitous Moscow gold. Well, come along the Second World War, the Russians were our allies, all right? And it was a common enemy, the war against fascism, which the progressive movement hated as much as anybody else. So the labor movement put its struggles on the shelf. It arrived at no-strike agreements with management and threw itself wholeheartedly into the war effort. The Almanac Singers, consisting of Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger and well, many, many other singers uh, involved with the progressive movement, created a lot of music during that time to support the war effort. Now, I know that Woody Guthrie's name rose to prominence during the 1960s, concurrent with the, uh, with the peace movement, and certainly he... He was, for the most part, a man of peace. But that's why the, these older songs of Woody's were, were never sung, because they were about war. I have one of those lodged in my mind from that time. Uh, the song about the United Auto Workers, Congress of Industrial Organizations, um, quitting civilian production and going into war production. It's Woody Guthrie's UAWCIO. I'll, I'll sing it for you right here with my, my guitar. I was standing by an army camp one day When I thought that I heard a soldier say Every jeep in this camp got that UAW stamp And I'm UAW too, I'm proud to say It's that UAW-CIO, it makes the army roll and go Turning out the jeeps and tanks, the airplanes every day at UAWCIO, it makes the army roll and go, puts wheels on the USA. I was there when the Union come to town. I was there when old Henry Ford went down. I was standing at gate four when the boys let out a roar. No, you can't keep us Union labor down. It's that UAWCIO, it makes the army roll and go, turning out the jeeps and tanks, the airplanes every day. At UAWCIO, it makes the army roll and go, puts wheels on the USA. I was there on that fatal day when they bombed Pearl Harbor far away. I was standing in Cadillac Square when the Union rallied there to put them plans for pleasure cars away. There'll be a Union label in Berlin 
When our union boys in uniform march in And are rolling in the ranks There'll be UAW tanks Roll old Hitler out and roll the union in Cause it's that UAW-CIO It makes the army roll and go Turning out the jeeps and tanks The airplanes every day It's that UAW-CIO It makes the army roll and go Puts wheels on the USA I have a healthy sense of guilt. I, I think that if there's any use for an A-bomb, it's to nuke guilt, by and large. But when you're wrong, you're wrong, and you ought to feel bad about it, you know. And, I, and where does that come from? Well, it comes from the time I killed the swan. Our gang was the Orville Street Gutter Rats, and up by the museum, which was further up, up through Rockefeller Park, was a beautiful art museum with a pond in front of it, and there were these graceful white swans that floated there. There were no ration stamps for swan. I mean, the ration stamps that we had for Schweibacher's Delicatessen would give out. I mean, you couldn't get a chicken, you couldn't get a, you know, a rolled roast, you couldn't get brisket for crying out loud, even for Passover. Uh, but there were no ration stamps for swans, and God help me. Well, I had this, well, grandfather, my grandfather, Simon B. Alabjewski Cohen, was in the living room there with his ear glued to the, can, the, the covering on the old radio set. That meant that I could climb up into the apple tree that he had in the backyard. Otherwise, he would yell and holler at me, and, and I would be in serious trouble. And I could climb up there, but why? So that I could cut out a nice why for a for applewood slingshot. There wasn't anything else growing around there that I could climb up, where the branches weren't so high that I couldn't climb up to them, that I could do it in that apple tree. So there I had the forked stick. Now, during the Second World War, they, they couldn't get rubber imported, so they had synthetic rubber. I don't know if you ever tried to make a slingshot with synthetic rubber, but it doesn't work. It has no elasticity. You need a red rubber binder. You need an oval cut out of a red rubber inner tube. I already told you about Dickie Simmons and the house full of dog poop down there, but there was an old car up on blocks in his side yard. It had been up on blocks for years, and it had tires that would never be used again, and inside one of them was a red rubber inner tube. So I pried it off, and cut the loop out of it that I needed, cut a couple of them out so I'd have a spare, cut the tongue out of my shoe, and you think I didn't get trouble for that, make it, to make the pocket at the end, and then, you know, strung on, tied on with uh, electrician's wire to both ends of the Y, and then through little slits in the back, just, you know, classic, the real article, uh, slingshot, the kind that Norman Rockwell used to have coming out of the backs of little boys' pockets. I mean, it's true. I remember that car particularly because Jimmy Simmons and I would come over at, uh, uh, during lunch. You could walk home from Doan Schools right across 105th. We'd take a U-joint from a pipe, small pipe, a reed from a particular kind of stinkweed that grew in my backyard that you could poke the pith out of, poke the reed into the U-joint, climb into that car, hunch way down, slit the cigarette butts that were in all of the ashtrays. Nobody knows how long they'd been there. And then stuff that pipe and smoke. And then on our way, on the way back to school, you just you know walk 
one door around the corner to, in front of Levin's fruit shop, we'd both steal an onion and then eat it so that uh, it wasn't on our breaths, but then they could smell it on our clothes, and they got on us uh, on us anyway. So anyway, there I had the, I had the red rubber binder and in, in, in my, in my slingshot. Now, I don't know if you've ever used a slingshot, but beans and pebbles, pebbles are ballistically unsure. Um, what are you going to use? Uh, we had a we had a thing we did with the trolley car, the street car, that came down 105th, you know, past Levin's, past Schweibacher's. Schweibacher's had an inset doorway. We'd take old clothes, stuff them full of newspapers with a, a pillowcase full of newspapers on top and a, maybe a hat pinned to it, a mannequin. We'd stand in Schweibacher's inset door, and when the trolley car came along at night, we'd throw the mannequin into the headlight. And all the brakes would go on, and we'd see these people flying from the back of the streetcar up to the front in a big pile. I know it was a rude thing to do, but it was fun. It was kind of it was funny, you know, to to be able to do that. And the screech and the sparks that'd fly out from the wheels and the sparks that'd shower down from the the pulley up ahead. It was a, an exciting affair. Well, we did that one night, and the the streetcar pulled away after rancor and screaming and hollering and all that, called the cops on that one. In stopping, however, it had shaken something loose, and when it pulled away, there on the ground between the tracks was a ball bearing. Ball bearing is ballistically perfect. Now, normally, if you had any metal, and that's why we didn't have souvenirs like bayonets and helmets and stuff like that, part of your you're being made part of the war effort was to take, I'd take my route money, for instance, on my paper route, I'd give it to my te my teacher at school, and she would use it to buy war bond stamps. She had everybody's stamp book in her drawer, and she put the stamps in her book. As soon as your book was full, she'd take it to the bank and trade it for a war bond. See, and then that you, that you give that to your folks, they put it away for you, probably, you know, toward college or whatever. So we all, our money was used for the stamp books. There was a big barrel in the in the middle of the play yard and scrap metal was put there to help the war effort we found out later on that wasn't even needed it was just to make you feel like it so if you got a helmet or a bayonet or something like that you were honor bound to take it down and throw it in that barrel and don't you wish we still had some of that stuff that was sent to us from the pacific and sent to us from from uh, germany you take the tin cans that the there some people had a machine that flattened tin cans but my mother always stamped on them. She was a substantial woman, stamped on them. And now and then she would she would o open one end of the can and forget she hadn't emptied it. And it was, so there's food on the sideboards shooting out of the tin cans because she'd be busy thinking about something else. And now this ball bearing, I, had a, I was conscience-stricken that I didn't take that over and throw that in that barrel, see, with all the other metal. I was probably the only kid that had anything metal on him. You know, except maybe eyelets on my shoes. So there I had the I had the slingshot and the red rubber binder. I had the ball bearing. And I had my Cleveland Plain Dealer delivery bag. And I got on the trolley car and I went up to the park. And uh Yeah, I plugged that swan and I stuffed it into my Cleveland Plain Dealer bag. I got on the streetcar and I brought it all the way home. 
I brought it in and gave it to my mother, and I guess I've never seen anybody that mad in my life. I, she was so mad. She sent me next door to Simon's Creek because she was afraid she might kill me. You know, she was that mad. And, uh, and I, she, I had a long time to think about it, you know. That's where, that's where I learned a true sense of guilt, you know, a true, real, profound, deep sense of guilt of wrongdoing. Uh, mitigated only by the fact that after the, the most serious of the storm clouds had passed, she plucked it and cooked it. That's how I got guilt. When the Führer says, we is the master race, we higher, higher. Right in the Führer's face, not to love the Führer is a great disgrace, so we higher, higher. Right in the Führer's face. When her Goebbels says, we own the world in space, we higher, higher. Right in her Goebbels face, when her Goering says, they'll never bomb this place, we higher, higher. Right in her curing space. Are we not the Superman? Aryan pure Superman. Yeah, we is the Superman. Super duper Superman. Is this Nazi land so good? Would you leave it if you could? Yeah, this Nazi land is good. We would leave it if we could. We bring the world new order. I'll hit this world new order. Everyone of foreign race will love the pure space when we bring to the world disorder. When the Führer says, we is the master race, we heil, heil. Right in the Führer's face, not to love the Führer is a great disgrace, so we heil, heil. Right in the Führer's face. Jones and his city slickers. Now that's a song that we all love to sing, and then we spit all over each other, uh, standing there waiting to cross the street in front of Paley's Drug. My neighborhood in Cleveland during the war years, well, my mother remarried when me and my brother, my brother was six and I was five. She remarried a young Jewish businessman, Sid Cohen, a very fine man. But 
he moved us into the into his old Jewish Ashkenaz Yiddish speaking neighborhood. We lived next door to his father, my step grandfather, Simon Bialovjeski Cohen. It was quite an experience uh, moving into a Jewish neighborhood. I was there till I was twelve years old when we moved west to uh, to Salt Lake. Um, I had a ne- well. I'm going to tell you a little bit about my neighborhood, okay? And then. I want to tell you about particularly one of my neighbors, Tommy Radigan. I made up a, a poem about him, oh, just lately, and I didn't know whether it had a tune or not. So it's one that I sent off to Mark Ross. And, yeah, he sat down in his rain barrel apartment with that same scratchy recorder, and he just sent it back to me. So, yeah, let me tell you a little bit about my neighborhood in Cleveland, and then uh, Mark will sing you that song about Tommy Radigan. I remember the, the only Gentile kids in the neighborhood was Tommy Radigan. Tommy Radigan lived about four houses down from us toward uh, 105th. It was the Second World War, and there were no metal toys. Plastic hadn't been invented. There was nothing for Christmas. You know, Christmas was uh, the war on. Boy, don't I remember that. See, I was a junior air air raid warden, and you were given a helmet. This is in in Ohio. Um, And and a spotter's guide. And it was a wheel. And on one side... um, were pictures of the silhouettes of Japanese aircraft, and on the other side, the silhouettes of German aircraft, and a little description that turned in the middle, and you had to match the description with the profile of the airplane. Because uh, so, so it was up to us as kids to be able to identify at night the silhouette of uh, enemy airplanes that were coming to bomb Cleveland. And, and uh, that ever-present voice, if there was a crack in our blackout curtains, you know, turn out the lights, don't you know there's a war on? You know, a night after night, you know, there's a porch lights being turned off because you're afraid of being bombed into oblivion by the Luftwaffe. <laughs> it seems, I, it, then, it, then it seemed pretty dire, but, you know, all of that was done to keep us really uh, in, as though, feeling as though we were participating in the war effort. I still have my ration book. Even the kids were issued ration books. Um, my allowance, did I, there was no bubble gum to buy. We chewed, during the summer, we, we, the tar on the streets bubbled, it was so hot. And we'd take off pieces of soft tar and chew that. Um, if there was, ever was any bubble gum that came into the store, the Paley's Drug Store on the corner, there'd be a line a block long, and you got one piece, and then you chewed it for a day and sold it for a nickel, and somebody else chewed it for a day and sold it for a nickel. And I guess that's one of the, how diphtheria and things got around the neighborhood a lot, you know, we were, Everybody was selling our chewing gum, or we were eating the tar. I remember that I can taste the sulfur, you know, to this day. It was Christmas time in Cleveland, 1942. The blackout meant no Christmas lights on Orville Avenue. I guess it didn't matter in a Jewish neighborhood. But Hanukkah seemed strange to me, my mother said it would. It was snowing Christmas morning, just like it was all night. The wind blew off Lake Erie and it froze our lashes tight. Me and Ned Levin, frozen hands and frozen feet. Snowplowed to the Radigans, living down the street. Now the Radigans were Christians, and they had a Christmas tree. Their house was dark and shabby, as cold as it could be. But little Tommy Radigan, he was a friend of mine. 
And we knew that Christian children got toys at Christmas time. Ration books and war bonds, stamped scrap metal for the war. Our favorite toys all vanished from Higby's downtown store. Souvenirs and watches, metal toys and keys were melted into bullets to kill the enemy. But Tommy had an electric train that circled round the tree. And a solid metal carousel that wound up with a key. Lead soldiers and a savings bank that worked with gears and strings, a rubber band P40, and lots of other things. Next day, me and Eddie went to Tommy's house to play, but the toys he got for Christmas had all been put away. Or taken to the schoolyard, although his folks were poor, and thrown into the barrel that helped us win the war. And so I asked my mother, she knows more than me, they've only got the money to buy a Christmas tree. I couldn't understand it until she made it clear. They wrapped the same old presents up for Tommy every year. I suppose it doesn't matter, I'm older now I know, and I've seen lots of Christmases and watched them come and go. But I can't forget that Hanukkah and one cold Christmas day when we played with Tommy's toys till they got put away. It was Christmas time in Cleveland, 1942. The blackout meant no Christmas lights on Orville Avenue. I guess it didn't matter in a Jewish neighborhood. But Hanukkah seemed strange to me, my mother said it would. Hall down there in Fresno, California, and I, I look forward to greeting Kenny again. I've got to get down there. The man is uh, well past 70, and, and I honor the name, and I honor his music. Honoring the music. This is a record I thought that I would never play 
on the radio. Let me tell you a story. I had an old friend in New York City by the name of Peter Wartzman uh, from a Jewish family that escaped from Austria just just in time uh, to be able to get out. He grew up in New York City, a young writer. He taught me so much about Isaac Babel and, and uh, Singer. He introduced me to Joseph Schmidt, the great uh, cantorial Jewish opera singer, lyric opera singer from Vienna. I learned a lot from him, much younger than I am, but I still regard him as one of my best teachers. Peter, as he described it, grew up inheriting backward spirals of tragedy that always drew his vision to the east, never to the west. And finally, in an act of courage, he caught a ferry boat across the Hudson River to New Jersey. I had a Greyhound ticket in his pocket and went west. And by God, he camped on the beach there at Seattle. Uh, ran into a Native American woman in the laundromat. They lived together for a while. Yeah, Peter became a writer and a fine writer. When he was younger, though, before I met him, he was hired by Moses Ash of Folkways Records to go to Europe and record a unique kind of music. Aaron Liebskind was in the Treblinka concentration camp in 1942, working in the crematorium. He saw his son killed and his wife killed in front of him. He begged to be allowed to sit by his son's body through the night. And while he sat there, Aaron Liebskind made a song to an old Polish tune. There were people in the camps, musicians, whose self-appointed task was to remember the songs and the stories and the poems of those who were going to perish. Through sheer act of will, of memory, to remember and to remember and to never forget. Aaron Liebskind told his, sang his song to one of those song keepers, and then he perished at Treblinka. After the war, that singer, Alessander Kaluzewijk, he traveled all over Europe to the remnants of the Jewish communities, and he delivered those songs back to the people. Let's listen to him sing now Aaron Liebskind's song to my little son in the crematorium. Mm-hmm. 
And there I was, in 1942 in Cleveland, worried about bubblegum. Nothing. I know what the words to this song mean. I have them right here in front of me. But I am unable to tell them to you. My paternal father was stationed on Tinian Island in the Marianas, in the, in the Pacific, the war with the Japanese. He was in the hospital there. He sent my brother and I a photograph of a B-29 bomber and written on the front of it, he wasn't allowed to take a picture of the whole plane, just the nose of it, with the words, you know, Legay, the plane that bombed uh, Hiroshima. I still wish I could find that photo. Maybe my brother has it down there in Sacramento. In any case, I'd like to uh, tell you a story about Enola Gay about those times growing up in Dayton, Ohio during part of the war years at Wright-Pattison Army Air Corps Base, and then sing you a song that I made up out of that experience about the Enola Gay. 
When I was a little boy, I lived with my stepfather and my mother at Dayton, Ohio, a little village called Greenmont Village, right at the edge of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. My stepfather was in the U.S. Army Air Corps. I remember when I was little, we'd stand in the schoolyard and play ball. The airplanes would take off from right pat, flying very low. And we'd look up and stop what we were doing, drop our bat and our ball, and start jumping up and down and waving. Well, if the pilot was looking down, he'd see those little kids down there waving at him, and he'd dip a wing. It made you feel like something to have a whole airplane dip its wing to you. In 1947, the whole family moved out to Salt Lake City, Utah. It's there that I learned about another airplane called the Enola Gay. It used to fly low over the schoolyards and parks in Salt Lake on its dummy bomb missions. It would swoop low over the salt flats and land at a little windswept village called Wendover out on the Utah-Nevada line. Well, one day, the Enola Gay and its sister ship, the boxcar, took off from Utah, and they flew to Tinian Island in the Marianas. And from there, one day, the Enola Gay took off and bombed Hiroshima. The next day, the boxcar bombed Nagasaki. As was the prerogative, and still is, of any commander, you can name your craft uh, whatever you want. Commander Claude Tibbets, flying the Enola Gay, named the airplane after his mother. My navigator had me perfectly lined up with the target. When I clutched in with my sight, I could clearly see the city of Hiroshima within my bomb sight. Then I clutched in and took the run, and I felt the bump of the airplane. I was greatly relieved because I knew the unit had gone from the airplane that we had successfully delivered. It meant so much to the Army Air Forces, American science, and industry. Look out, look out, from your schoolroom window. Look up, young children, from your place. Wave your hand at the shining airplane. Such a beautiful sight is in old again. It's many a mile from the Utah desert to Tinian Island far away. A standing guard by the barbed wire fences that hide the secret of in old again. High above the clouds, in the sunlit silence, so peaceful here I'd like to stay. But there's many a pilot who would swap his pension for a chance to fly in old again. What is that sound? High above my city, I rush outside and search the sky. Now we are running to find the shelters The air a siren start to cry What will I say when my children ask me Where was I flying upon that day? With trembling voice I gave the order To the bombardier of an old game Look out, look out from your schoolroom window, look up, young children, from your place. Your bright young eyes will turn to ashes in the blinding light 
Savinola Gate I turn to see the fireball rising My God, my God, all I can say I hear a voice within me crying My mother's name was Nola Gate Look out, look out from your schoolroom window Look up, young children, from your place. Oh, when you see those warplanes flying, each one is named in all again. In all again. Well, by the way, I don't get it right all the time. <laughs> I've recently been corrected on that. It's Paul Tibbetts. Not Claude Tibbetts. I think I was thinking of Claude Etherly, who I believe flew the weather ship. He was the one who broke a window and to get himself sent away to jail because he knew he was having serious problems and wasn't able to deal with them. I, was, well, I always wondered what happened to these folks. I know that the pilot of the Enola Gay uh, went on to have a successful career in the in the Air Force. After the war was over, after the bomb was dropped, you know, the progressive movement was riding high. They had contributed substantially to the war effort. Um, they felt solid. The uh, Union soldiers were coming home. The progressive campaign for President Henry Wallace, uh, who had been Ro Roosevelt's vice president, um, was geared up as a third party to, to bring full fruit to the progressive movement in this country. Well, then, of course, the roof fell in. The Cold War happened. Uh, the progressive campaign in many ways was a failure. In others, it certainly wasn't. But the door slammed on the progressive movement. Still a lot of songs were written during that time. Uh, they, were, they were quite popular. There was um, a newspaper reporter in Los Angeles, uh, soon to be blacklisted as, uh, uh, by the McCarthy Times, and he wrote songs. I played one of them for you a couple of weeks ago called Cannery Bill. His name was Vern Partlow. Well, he wrote this song called Old Man Adam or the Talking Atomic Blues, and it was quite popular. I mean, it was scheduled to be recorded by Frank Sinatra and some other well-known people. Of course, when the blacklist hit, uh, it was censored, and you, you couldn't find it anywhere. You couldn't hear it anywhere. But this is a version that somehow managed to escape. I want you to listen to a very rare recording of Old Man Adam recorded by the Sons of the Pioneers. I'm going to preach you all a sermon about Old Man Adam, that's me. I don't mean the Adam in the Bible, Adam. I don't mean the Adam that Mother Eve elated. I mean the thing that science liberated. The thing that Einstein says he's scared of. And when Einstein's scared, brother, you'd better be scared. If you're scared of the Adam, here's what you gotta do. You gotta gather all the people in the world with you, cause if you don't get together and do it, well, first thing you know, I'm gonna blow this world plumb too. Hiroshima, Nagasaki. used to be such a simple joy my cyclotron was just a super toy and folks got born at work and marry and Adam was a word in the dictionary and then it happened 
The science boys from every climb, they all pitched in with overtime, and before they knew it, the thing was done, and they'd hitched up the power of the Galdern sun and put a harness on old Saul, splitting atoms while the diplomats were splitting hairs. Hiroshima, Nagasaki, But the Adams here, in spite of hysteria, flourishes in Utah as well as Siberia. And whether you're a black, white, red, or brown, the question is this when you boil it down. To be or not to be, that's the question. The answer to it all ain't military datum like who gets there firstest with the mostest atoms. No, the people of the world must decide their fate. They got to get together or disintegrate. I hold this truth to be self-evident that all men may be cremated equal. Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Alvacardo, Bikini. Yes, it's up to the people cause the atoms don't care. You can't fence me in, I'm just like air. I don't give a hoot about any politics or who got what into whichever fix. All I want to do is sit around and have my nucleus bombarded by neutrons. Now, the moral is this, just as plain as day, that old man Adam is here to stay. I'm going to stick around, and that's for true. But ah, my dearly beloved, are you? So listen, folks, here is my thesis. Peace in the world, or the world in pieces. Oh, yeah, the Sons of the Pioneers. Well, of course, that that was pulled from the racks right away. Look, I'm going to get out of this and finish up. Uh, I hope I haven't been too tedious. I've managed to vent and get a lot of things off of my mind. I want to finish 1950. Toge Sankichi wrote a poem after attending a Hiroshima Peace Memorial. He's a resident of Hiroshima there in downtown Hiroshima, which was broken up by the police. Uh, I'll give you that poem recited by my wife, Joanna Robinson, uh, translated by Richard H. Richard H. Benair, and Koto by Fusako Yoshida. They come running, they come running. From that side, from this, hands on holstered pistols, the police come on the run. August 6, 1950. The peace ceremony has been banned. On street corners at night, on bridge approaches at dawn, the police standing guard are restive. Today, at the very center of Hiroshima, the Hachibori intersection in the shadows of the F department store, the stream of city folk who have come to place flowers at memorials, at ruins, suddenly becomes a whirlpool. Chin straps taut with sweat plunge into the crowd. Split by the black battle line, reeling, the crowd as one looks up at the department store. From fifth floor windows, sixth floor windows, fluttering, fluttering, against the backdrop of summer clouds now in shadow, now in sunlight. Countless handbills dance and scatter slowly over upturned faces. 
into outstretched hands, into the depths of empty hearts. People pick them up off the ground, arms swing and knock them out of the air, hands grab them in midair, eyes read them. Workers, merchants, students, girls, old people and children from outlying villages, a throng of residents representing all Hiroshima for whom August 6th is the anniversary of a death, and the police, pushing, shoving, angry cries, the urgent appeal of the peace handbills they reach for, the anti-war handbills they will not be denied. Streetcars stop, traffic lights topple, jeeps roll up, fire sirens scream, riot trucks drive up, two trucks, three, an expensive foreign car forces its way through the ranks of police in plain clothes. The entrance to the department store becomes a grim checkpoint. Still, handbills fall. Gently, gently. Handbills catch on the canopy. Hands appear, holding a broom, sweep every last one off. They dance their way down, one by one, like living things, like voiceless shouts. Lightly, lightly. The peace ceremony, the releasing of doves, the ringing of bells, the mayor's peace message carried off on the breeze, is stamped out like a child's sparkler. All gatherings are banned. Speeches, concerts, the UNESCO meeting. Hiroshima is under occupation by armed police and police in mufti. The smoke of rocket launchers rises from newsreel screens. From back streets resound the shouts of those, children too, who signed petitions against the bomb. In the sky over Hiroshima on August 6, 1950, spreading light above anxious residents, casting shadows on silent graveyards, toward you who love peace, toward me who wants peace. Drawing the police on the double. Handbills fall. Handbills fall. First of all, sir, what is your principal criticism of the way that we have conducted our war in Korea? It's my opinion that uh, we should fight the war to win in Korea rather than try to settle it at the diplomatic table, which is impossible when you're dealing uh, with Russia. Well, Mr. Van Zandt, would you extend your will to win so far as to include the atomic bomb? Very definitely, Dr. Peterson. I've always been a firm believer that we should use the atomic bomb, not only on Korea, uh, but north of the Alu River in Manchuria. I think that uh, there are several targets uh, in northern Korea uh, we could use. That is, we could destroy them with the atomic bomb. We could destroy them and contaminate them. This has been your Utah Phillips, the golden voice of the great southwest, and you've once again have been listening to Loafer's Glory, the hobo jungle of the mind.
only had one ball. Gehring had two, but they were small. Himmler was very similar, but goalballs had no balls at all.